Peace and thank you, family, for tuning into Creative Habits Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Anthony. And I'm your co-host, Indigo. We're based in Washington, D.C. with leading discussions on topics surrounding pop culture, business, lifestyle, and art with an occasional guest appearance within the creative and entrepreneurial industry. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Creative Habits Podcast. Today, we have a very, very, very special guest. I have my mom on the show today. Um, So, mom, welcome to the show. Welcome, mom. Thank you. Thank you for helping me. So I just wanted to share with our listeners who you are and what you do before we delve into some questions. So, Mbuya Mavu is a first-generation Zimbabwean-American mother of four, a grandmother and a wife. She has been an educator in an African-centered school for 19 years, 20 this year, mm-hmm. has offered Banachibusa services in her community for 12 years, and has been working as a postpartum doula for a year. A activist, home birth mom, and natural childbirth evangelist, are other labels that she embraces. Her space, Chimonera Chetnu, which means our wrapping cloth, is a result of her passion for researching and sharing traditional African solutions to the modern challenges of female adulthood, parent partnering, and parenting. Welcome to the show, Mbuya Mafu. Thank you so much for having me. So this is um, a very unique episode. We are going to ask my mother questions and she's going to ask us questions because we have a, a unique experience where we all had um, kind of experienced the birth of <laughs> the grandson, mm-hmm, the son. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted mm-hmm. to kind of um, share that story since we are, are we coming up to the season for um, Black Maternal Health Month? Or am I too early? I think you're too early. Too early. But anyway, it's an important conversation to have nonetheless. (laughs) So we're pleased to have you. Okay. Thank you for having me. Um, I think it's a really important conversation as well. I'm no longer of childbearing age, but you guys are. And I have a lot of curiosity about how you guys perceive things, um, which is different from when I stopped having babies, which was about 10 years ago, eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. so explain to us, please, what a Blacktivist is. Because that's a, a very new word to me, and I'm very curious. Okay, so a Blacktivist is somebody who advocates, promotes, and is an activist for breastfeeding. Mm. A Blacktivist is the same thing, but somebody who focuses those efforts on Black women and Black babies. Beautiful. So you're more kind of focused on the chocolate milk. Okay, very <laughs> nice. So can you elaborate a little bit more about um, what Chimonera Chetnu is, what services you provide, and how you decided to get into this industry or become an entrepreneur? Of such uh, awesome. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yes. So the first, um, I, I've been kind of working. I'm a postpartum doula, and it's something that I have been doing probably um, 
probably since I got married, which is about 20 years now. Um, as you know, we grew up in a kind of community that was centered around an African-centered school. And a lot of the moms, when they had babies, we would help each other in that three-month period after you had the baby. We'd make food for each other, help each other with each other's kids, make lunches for each other's kids, make sure the mom had whatever she needed postpartum. Because I grew up in Zimbabwe, that's something that we kind of did. Um, it was built into our culture. Um, coming here and then having my babies in this kind of um, uh, intimate community, it was something for me to realize that most women in America don't have postpartum support. Mm. Um, and they don't have good postpartum support. So that was the first thing that made me think about maybe becoming a, a postpartum doula. I thought about it for a while, but my kids were still young. And um, training to be a postpartum doula is not cheap. It's, it's, um, it's something that you have to invest some money in. Um, as far as Bana Chimbusa, Bana Chimbusa is, it's actually called the keeper of the things or the keeper of the objects. And it's somebody who um, trains or advises women before they go into marriage. And so Bana Simbusa services, I started doing this because we have a thing in Zimbabwe where you have your father's sister is the person who's in, who's in charge of um, all of your affairs to do with romance and marriage and all of that kind of thing. Your father's sister takes care of that, your tete. Um, so before you get married, you have sessions with her where she talks to you about marriage and everything you need to know. And then right before you get married, you have what we now call a kitchen tea, which is like a party. But it actually is instructional where they teach you about marriage, how to keep a house and so on. And also teaches you very intimate details on how, um, how sex happens and how to have sex and how to have it well. Um, again, another thing that you don't have here, people are just kind of thrown into their marriages, expected to know what to do and so on. So um, again, seeing that that was lacking in my community, whenever someone would get married, they'd say, hey, this is what we do in Zimbabwe. You want me to do it for you? And I look back now and I'm realizing that the, the first person I did a kitchen tea for was my sister-in-law. She's now been married for, what, 17 years? And there's been mothers here and there. So I've realized now that I've got quite a large community of women that I've, quote, unquote, trained for marriage. Um, and I started thinking about all of the things that I had been researching, where I'll buy books and read books, I'll read papers, I'll call old people at home every time I go to Zimbabwe, I'm asking questions. And I had all of this information and I thought this is something that um, I need to share. Uh, I do it very selfishly as well, because I feel like you and your sisters are going to be in a position where you need this community of women and you need this information. And so if I don't have it and make it a real and tangible thing, that information is going to die in one, in one generation. What That's is some, what that it was about. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. What are some um, difficulties have um, that you've seen women go through um, during postpartum? One of the main difficulties that women go through is exhaustion. Mm. Um, exhaustion and loneliness. So I can give you an example. When I had Hundi, when I had her 30 years ago, are you still 30? <laughs> We're not going to disclose my age on this podcast. Okay. Well, when I had her, um, my mother was there 
My mother's two sisters were there. The other sister was in England, but she was there on the phone the whole time. My father was there supporting. Um, Handy's biological father's mother was there. I think there was a great aunt that was there as well. Um, my father's best friend, Uncle Caesar, flew in from South Africa. Are you serious? Those people were all, yes. <laughs> so those people were all in the house for the birth of one baby. So literally all I had to do was wake up, roll over, someone would put the baby on my breast. It was all about, have you eaten enough? Have you slept enough? Any exercise I did was purely for my own good, as in get up and take a walk, go sit in the sun. People are watching you just to make sure your mood is okay, all of that kind of thing. Um, and in America, you have that baby. Most people have to go back to work. Usually after four days, the woman is alone at home, and God forbid she has more kids. Mm. Those kids, she still has to take care of them and everything in the house, and it's actually quite shocking. So it's... Uh, I like to say that postpartum in America is like an invisible, an invisible time. When a woman is pregnant, everyone's like, oh, it's front and center. And then a few days after the baby's born, everyone sees the baby. And then from there, you know, mom doesn't exist. (laughs) Mother doesn't exist. She's just invisible. And it's very dangerous. And I believe that's why one of the reasons why we lose so many lives Mm. in America, because a lot of women are not dying in the hospital. They're going home and dying. So going back to your kitchen tea parties, um, I'm very curious to know, what are the benefits now of you having to train these women, but also seeing your um, the, the, the fruits of your labor or um, your support and guidance to them? Have you seen anything that um, has changed in how they you know, approach their relationships or approach how they carry themselves as mothers or wives or whatever? Can, can you kind of share what you think? Um, yes, I think one of the one of the most important things is not necessarily everybody's relationship is very, very different. So one of the things is really getting to know the person that you're working with, getting to know their family as much as you can about the man that she's marrying, um, his family as well. It's not really, it's really about teaching people communication tools and resolution tools and giving somebody the tools to fix something before the problem happens. So now, if you look at it from a traditional African point of view, there's some things that we that are kind of like set into this is how you behave. Society is a lot more free in America. And so it's more about um, maybe getting a couple to think about what is it that you actually want from each other? Some people don't ask each other, what do you want from each other? And then knowing those things and kind of having a long-term plan, um, making people think more about how their partner behaves and what they can do, um, what things work and what things don't work. But like I said, everybody's different. Everybody's relationship is different. And that's also one of the things that we teach is that don't look at somebody else's relationship because it's not going to be the same as yours. Everybody's relationship is different. But really what I think it is, is not just having some tools that you go into the relationship with. Also having a community of people where you can go confidentially and say, hey, this is what's going on. It's almost like having a lawyer that represents your marriage and not just the individual person. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so um, before we share um, my birth experience, I wanted to know what was it like for you when I was born? 
or when I was in the process of being born. Okay. And your, yeah. Yeah. So your um your actual birth was was really difficult. I was 18 and I was very scared. Um, I was also not in a good place relationship-wise with my family. They took care of me and they loved me and they were good to me, but it was not in the plan for me to have a baby in my last year of high school. So a lot of people were disappointed and that, you know, made some complicated feelings. Um, the birth in Zimbabwe, I initially wanted to have a birth in a freestanding maternal clinic because of my size. I'm kind of, um, was kind of small. Um, my health insurance would not cover it. And so my parents sent me with a doctor whose name was Dr. Kangwende, who was known to be, the, that, that's the doctor that if you're, you're middle class in Zimbabwe and your daughter got in trouble, that's the guy that you sent your daughter to. Um, he had a reputation for being very fatherly, and he was, and very loving and very accepting. But the other side of someone being fatherly, if somebody is your father, you don't really get to have a say in what you do, do you? Mm. He pretty much told you what was going to happen. He did it nicely. He was very sweet. And that's kind of how the hospital system works in Zimbabwe. So all of the crunchy ideas about how I wanted to have a baby kind of, uh, there was no space. So pause, you already had your, you already had your crunchy ideas prior to giving birth to me. Yes, I already <laughs> had my crunchy ideas. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's very weird to me because I thought that was the reason why you became very crunchy is your experience with my birth. But continue. No, I already, I already wanted to have more of a midwife experience than uh, I'd, I'd been, I think, from the time I was probably about seven or eight, had been really fascinated with the whole idea of birth and childbirth. I was very close to my mom's younger sister, Auntie Lucy. So um, I remember her wanting to have a baby. It took her eight years to have her youngest son. And then when she finally had to, I was kind of very involved, but from a distance. And then I was like her postpartum person. So after she had the baby that first school holiday, I stayed with her. And so Teo was my first newborn baby. That's something else they kind of do in Zimbabwe as well, is that they will have youngish girls stay with someone who's having a baby. So, you know, you can run errands for them and so on. But it's also how you learn how to take care of a baby. Okay, continue yeah. your story. Yeah, so I, I had my crunchy ideas. I ended up having you at Avenues Clinic in Zimbabwe, which is, you know, the hospital where you go to have babies. Um, it was difficult because most of the time they wanted me to lie down. Um, I didn't, well, no, not at the beginning. At the beginning, they wanted me to walk around, which is different from here. They did want you to keep upright. But at the point where you're actually having the baby, they want you to lie down. I was more comfortable in the bathroom sitting on the loo. And so I locked the door. Sounds mom familiar. Was banging on the door. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was banging on the door and saying, get out. Don't have that baby in the toilet. What are you doing? So then I came out. Um, at some point when I went into transition, I just gave up. I was just like, I can't do it. I cannot push around. So the doctor was like, fine, I'll help you. Um, which is something that I now know is different. You know, you can, there's different ways to encourage someone. There's different positions you can put someone in. He was like, I'll help you. So he did a, you were a vacuum delivery. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's probably why my head is shaped so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what is, so what is that? What is that? A vacuum delivery. They literally have this round <laughs> thing and it's a vacuum and they stick it on top of the baby's head and mm. they yank. Mm. They pull you up. Very painful for both mother and baby. Mm. 
Mm. Um, but in order to do that, they do what's called an episiotomy, where they cut the skin so that they can attach the vacuum. They cut like the area between your vagina and anus to attach the vacuum to pull the baby out. So that was pretty traumatic. You came out, you know, you were a very big baby. What I've is had big? Big. You were 10 pounds. What? <laughs> Look at it. So <laughs> 10 pounds on a 98 pound woman. <laughs> yes. 10 pounds. And I mean, your son was what? He was, he came out a bit early. So five he was pounds. five pounds. So think a baby twice. No, I can't. His size. Like your first doctor's visits, you know, the nurses were like, how many months is that baby? I'll be like, no, I just had her. Huge. <laughs> wow. You were really big. Um, that may have been part of the reason why um, it was difficult for me to get you out. Um, so after that, that, that's not where my trauma was. My trauma was in, there was a student doctor that came afterwards to stitch up this, um, the episiotomy, and he did it without anesthetic. Mm. And I thought... That's just what they did. I didn't know any better, but I was screaming the entire time. By this time, my family had left the room and they were following the baby. So, you know, they're like, oh, we're just going to clean her up and so on. So um, the, the trauma from that being stitched without anesthetic was so bad that for the first maybe three or four months after you're born, I had a stammer. I couldn't speak. And so um, my mom was worried about stammer, so she took me to um, my doctor, and she said it's not uncommon when women have a very difficult birth. It's not uncommon for them to have the stammer. Later now, as a postpartum doula, I've been reading about it, and I now know that that's a form of PTSD. So I had PTSD from your birth. Can you imagine? All of the time, you know, all of the other dramas going on, your biological father was not present. There was chaos with the family. So it was just, you know, a really um, difficult time. In all of that difficulty and only being 18 years old, I never had any doubt that I could care for you. I never had any doubt that I could make enough milk for you. All of those things were kind of built in culturally. And that's what I'm seeing is missing here. Wow. Mm -hmm is that um, because you don't have that connection to large amounts of women who are doing these things, breastfeeding especially in front of you, women here are always like, will I make enough milk? Can I make enough milk? There's not enough milk. Measure the milk. Do this. I never thought about it. Never thought about it. It It's interesting you said that because um, my family is from North Carolina and um, women being separated from family and stuff like that and having and having to go to work right after birth is fairly new maybe like 40 to 50 years but before then there was the the grandmother of the house or the doula of the um the village per se who would deliver all the babies and mm-hmm. um, the midwife, yeah. yeah everyone would the village everyone in the community would be there for that that special occasion, you know, and that was like maybe 40 to 50 years ago when my grandfather uh, was in his early 30s or 40s, you know, so it's fairly recent that um, that separation has been created. Mm-hmm. Part, part of that separation, I mean, it's happening in Africa as well as happening in Zimbabwe as well. Part of that separation um, has happened not just from people moving, but there was a deliberate attempt after I think it was World War II 
mm. where hospitals, it, it suddenly became something you could make money off of, right? Mm. If you have to go to the hospital and you have to have a surgeon and so on to have the baby, this is now a new revenue of income. So there was they actively got rid of midwives and were saying that they're dirty and uneducated and so on, so that women would go into the hospitals. And then on top of that, if you take away breast milk, which is free, people have to feed their babies. Formula is a million gajillion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. So the separation was deliberate. Um, you know, because of capitalism, this is the country we live in. It was deliberate because this is something you can make a profit off of, mm. you know, because I, I don't know how much your birth cost, but honey, I'm sure it's past 30, 40,000, right? Yeah. All of be. the girls after we had 35, a baby. 35K. Right. So for me, having a home birth, because, um, you know, your brothers and sisters were born at home, $5,000. Mm. That's it. Five thousand dollars is what the midnight what we what we had to pay with the midwife. I mean, you guys started out with the midwife before you had complications. Um, but you know, it's it was something where you know how much it's gonna cost, you pay it, and it's finished. There's no hidden cost. There, when you go to the hospital, nobody's saying to you, Well, this is gonna cost $45.99 if you take this Tylenol. You don't know, you're just in there, you're just happy to be alive, and then you just have to accept. Whatever building coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I have questions for you guys. Yes. When Handy told me that she was pregnant, my first thought was, oh shit. He's a black woman in America. They're about to kill my child. That was my wow. very first thought. That is so sad. Isn't it? And I think it's because, I mean, the statistics say in America, Black women are three times more likely than white women to die in childbirth. So if you do the maths, that means if three times more likely. So if three of you are going to die, it means what? Nine of us have to die? Is that the math? Is that correct? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is Um, so funny. Hold on before you continue, because... When I told you, remember when I told you, and you're like, oh, congratulations, I'm so happy. And it's like internally, like you're already in in parent mode. (laughs) And I probably would not have understood that until, you know, I became a mom. I don't know. That reaction. I don't know if you remember what we did. We got in the car and we went to the store to get you some prenatal vitamins. Because I was thinking, okay, what are we going to (laughs) do? We need to keep her healthy, you know? Um, That was. That was my first fear is, is she and the baby, are they going to come out of this alive or am I going to have two coffins? That mm-hmm. was my, my first thought. It was very scary for me. I was also thinking to myself, this is your fault. Why did you bring her to America? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we're in this racist country and, you know, it was just, that was, that was my primary stress. Wow. So what's the question? Oh, so my <laughs> question for you is, I want to ask Phil first. You're asking us about postpartum. Mm-hmm. What was your postpartum experience like as a dad? Um, it was more mental than physical, you know, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out first and foremost, 
am I good enough to be a father? How can I be a father? You know what I mean? Not being in a household, a two-parent household, or even having that example to mirror. So just trying to figure out what I can do to be um, a good partner and a good father, you know? Um, being nervous as hell, to be honest with you, because <laughs> it was my first child. Like, I was a wreck inside when I f- first heard about it. But that and, you know, just mentally maturing, like, I, just mentally uh, forcing myself to um, grow, you know, mm-hmm. instead of being the person, I don't know how I want to say it, just, just trying mentally maturing. You know, mm-hmm. just having mm-hmm. that. You that, said it well. Yeah. 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 That's very yeah. interesting. Like, I've never even thought to ask him that, but that's really important. Well, what like, you kind of noticed. Was? Yeah, his postpartum experience. I don't think we've either exchanged our experiences postpartum. Mm. But I, um, I, I, can, I can say I was watching Phil and I was worried. Mm. I was worried because too. I'm, I'm like, you watch, but you don't, we weren't communicating. Yeah. Yeah. And that, it's, it's a difficult time. I think, um, and this is another thing with, with postpartum care, being a postpartum doula is kind of looking out for the dads too. Like I was saying to you, I mean, honey, your grandfather's not your dad, but he was the father figure when you were born. Mm. All of his brothers were there. And Uncle Caesar, his best friend was there because, you know, the African men instinctively know that we have to, they have to hold up the man the same way the wom- the women are holding up the mom. Mm. So that's, uh, and even as far as um, bringing food and making sure there's food in the house and making sure repairs in the house are done or whatever it is, the men step up as well as the women step up. But we're so isolated here that there isn't really that, um, it's not just that there isn't the extended family, there isn't the language. We haven't yet made the language to invite each other into each other's spaces. Mm. So where there were probably at least 10 to 15 men who would have been happy to come and help, but they don't know how to ask. Like Nobody's going to be like, uh, Phil, what do you need? Because everybody's thinking, oh, he's a man, he can do it. And then you're also thinking, well, he's a man, I'm not going to be as much of a man if I'm asking him for help or whatever it is people think. Women do it as well. Someone will be thinking, honey must be really hungry, but I'm not just going to walk into her house and start cooking. Like, what if she doesn't want me there? So we don't have the space and the language to think mm-hmm. about it. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to kind of educate people about is make those spaces, find those people, you know what I mean? So when you have, when you're finding a godparent for your child, before you even plan a baby shower, you need to be planning a list of people who are going to come and help you postpartum. You need to be able to ask your close friends and your cousins to say, listen, my baby's due on March 11th. How do you feel about taking one week of your time off to come and sit with me and my baby? People don't do that because you're all automatically thinking, no one's going to do that. That's too much. Mm. But when you think about your friends, I mean, Hundi, if Zakia said to you, okay, you have three weeks off next year. I'm having a baby. Can you give me one of those weeks? You'd be like, yeah, sure. Right. Mm. Especially because you know what you went through 
when you had a kid. So that's the kind of thing. Those are the conversations I'm trying to have people your age and even younger start having about how do you how do you figure out how to support each other? Your son is two. Nakai, his second cousin, is also two. By the time they're seven, I need for both of them to know that they have to have each other's back in those situations. You have to have those. So because, because it's built into our language culturally in Zimbabwe, there's somebody like, you know, you have so many mothers, you have small mothers, you have big mothers, you have paternal aunts. In the culture, it's already built in what those people are going to do for you. Mm-hmm. So there's no question, right? I mean, you see how my cousin, who is um, Handy's junior grandmother, she just inserts herself in her life, right? <laughs> and she doesn't care what you think and so on. And so those are the things. But going back to uh, men and postpartum care. Um, you were saying you were worried about Phil? It's, I just, was, I was, it's just so hard, you know, being a man from the States, um, you're not taught to communicate, you know? And we often, like you said, we often create these scenarios in our head that may not ever happen unless we go out and, you know, just simply ask. But as a man in the States or a Black man, whenever we try to show, when we show emotion from a young age, it's often shined upon. You know what I mean? Fix your face. Yeah. Don't cry. Yeah. I'll give you something to cry about. Like, so <clears throat> for me, it, <clears throat> it was just all communication. Me learning how to grow and be, be able to communicate um, what I was feeling inside. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a very different space, though. Uh, being married to an African-American um, their spaces, like I can honestly say one of the reasons why I have home birth is because, well, when I was having my babies, my husband had locks. He's big. He's not necessarily friendly. Like he doesn't smile a lot. Um, my fear was something would happen or something would go wrong and he would raise his voice and they would like call the police and arrest my husband. And Because there's always this fear when... He has a big, very strong energy. And just by virtue of being a dark-skinned Black man, people are already scared of you. And I know how he feels about me and our kids. And I thought, someone's going to do something wrong in the hospital. He's going to be like, hey, what are you doing? And then before you know it. And this is not an unreal fear because you've seen videos of this happening to Black families in hospitals. You've seen this happen. So that was one of the things, one of the reasons why I wanted home birth is that I could control that space. My husband would be safe That's and I space. would be safe. It was just my space. And, and um, you know, no kind of assumption about what our family was or wasn't or, or what we were or weren't. It was just, we could just be ourselves and not have to worry. So I think in a sense, I was, I was worried about you, Phil, because I thought if things go wrong, mm. Um, what are we going to do? Like, like, what if he, what if, what if things go wrong? What if they do something wrong to my child and Phil gets angry? How are we going to contain that situation? Mm. Or what if something's wrong with my child and Phil doesn't get angry, but they're not listening to him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so all of, all of those things, um, 
were were a worry for me. Yeah, that's I mean, that's really deep, but it's it's our reality. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember. Well, at least I don't know if Phil knows, but honey, <laughs> I had a discussion with Hundy. And I was like, let me do most of the talking in the hospital because I have an accent. <laughs> I think he was in there when you said that. Yeah. I was like, I, I have an accent. So, you know, they're going to, they're going to. But they the treated country. me licensed once they heard your voice, didn't they? Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, where are you from? Because then suddenly you're not a regular African. So it's kind of like, what do we call it? African privilege. Mm. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to be careful because you can't be an African who sounds like my mom. You have to be no. an African who sounds like maybe that could be a diplomat. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's what it is. It's it's terrible that we have to think about these things and 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 think through these things. But you are you are worried, Phil. But you did great. He did do great. I remember that he was very supportive, and yeah, there know, was, it was, there was very traumatic. Was like, oh, yeah, it was it was traumatic. It was long. It wasn't easy. It definitely it wasn't, wasn't easy. easy. And and I and I know. I mean, I'm her mother. But I know uh, it's hard to watch somebody that you love in pain and not really be able to to take it away. I think, I think you, yeah, I think you did a good job. You didn't pass out. I felt like I was going to though. I felt like, I felt like (laughs) just one wrong move. I was going to just, just, just fold, just fold it. Yeah. So what's, what's the birth story like from your experience. Your perspective. Yeah, what's the... So from my perspective, uh, are we talking about the birth story now? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking we could make this a part two. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we had a regular doctor's appointment. Um, I believe it was a Thursday, mm-hmm. right? Thursday afternoon, and we had an appointment at GW just to check the progression of the baby. Before that, we went to, uh, we walked like five blocks to go get a sandwich. So I, I wanted to eat at grilled uh, the grilled cheeseburger, not the grilled cheeseburger, grilled cheese um, DC. There's like a grilled cheese restaurant where you can get any sandwich that you want that's grilled cheese, any type of grilled cheese you want, they would make. Mm. And I had yet to go there. And I knew that it was just down the street. Now, mind you, I know just down the street from my senior year of college. So that walk from Foggy Bottom to where my school was, was not a difficult walk for a non-pregnant person. But in my mind, <laughs> I thought that I could make it. So we did about a, an hour walk. It took an hour to get over there. We walked an hour to get a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch. And I kept telling him, oh, it's not far. It's just five minutes away. But she we, really wanted that sandwich. <laughs> so I wanted to eat the sandwich. So that's where we went for lunch. And then um, after the lunch, we went to my doctor's appointment because we also had arrived early. Um, when we got to the doctor's office, um, the woman was like, are you sure that you're 38 weeks? And I was just like, yes. And she was just like, okay, well, um, I'm going to have to. Uh, she know. walked out to talk to somebody and came back and was like, um, I think we have to uh, have this baby today. Not yet. Oh. So we were with a nurse and I know nurses can't really disclose information that a doctor can. So she was looking and she was just like, your baby's measuring to be. I forget what she was saying, 34 weeks, yeah. 35 to 34 weeks. And so she was just like, okay, well, I can't tell you more information, but we're going to send you to the doctor down the street. 
So that's when we went to the doctor down the street. And mm-hmm. then the doctor down the street was also asking me, are you sure that your baby is 38 weeks? Because it's showing to be, you know, 34. And then that's when they found out that I had IUGR. So she was just like, all right, well, I don't think I can send you home today, but you've got to, you've got to say what IUGR is. It's interuterine growth restriction. Yes. When the baby's growing. So when the baby's not growing and is not receiving any food from your placenta. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what, that was what the the case was, but I hadn't been to the doctor for two weeks. So prior to that, like the baby was fine. They were saying, and I also just recently left the hospital though. Remember that. I was in the hospital for a week. You left, you left the hospital. You were in the hospital when you were 28 weeks. 28. Oh, so that's that, early, early. Yeah. Okay. But um, what I do remember is that week. Sorry to just jump in. Yeah. That week you called me more than once and you said, I don't feel okay. The baby's not moving as much. I think something's not right. And I go on and on and on about people not listening to black women. And I have to say, I wasn't really listening to you because I kept you saying words. Yeah, I kept saying in the last couple of weeks, there's less space for the baby. So they move less. I'm sure you're fine. And you were like, yes, but there's something wrong with my body. And something does, I just don't feel right. And so I was like, does your head hurt? Does that? And you were like, I don't know. I just don't feel right. So when I look back on that, I was like, she was in tune with her body and knew there was something wrong with the baby. So I think for me as your mom, I feel like I know better than you. I kind of was overriding that in the same way that I'm constantly telling people, don't do that. To me, yeah. To listen, yeah. So, and that's the thing where I actually didn't bring that up, but prior to that doctor's appointment, um, when I was staying with you, like I literally, because Wami was very, very (laughs) energetic in my belly. So at some point, like, you know, even especially after I ate sugar, because I had an obsession with eating octopus candy. Mm -hmm. So like I was eating, you know, the wrong foods, but the foods that I knew that my baby would be jumping in. And he was just doing like very faint movements. So I'm like, that's, that's not how our our pattern of interaction goes when I'm doing this you know and sometimes we play and he you know kick but at that point I was just like oh my god like and then for me I was like violently throwing up and I didn't know why at that point I shouldn't have been throwing up that much but it was just like just but it would be like violent and then it'd just be it it's almost like projectile yeah right so I wasn't even retaining food as much as I would have been so back to the doctor um, in the office, she was just like, oh, baby, you're not going home tonight. You're going to be having to be admitted to the hospital. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you're going to have to be in labor today mm-hmm. because you're like, if, if we don't take you now, I don't know what's going to, you know, what's going to happen to you and your baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So had we not gone to that appointment, which I was going to cancel in the first place, um, Again, you didn't you imagine to me because because you I had said don't have too many ultrasounds, you know, crunchy mommy. And you were like, um, I think I want this other ultrasound. So you know how I always do, I'll be like, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do, do it. it. In my yeah. brain, I'm thinking because <laughs> she was saying too so, many ultrasounds and everything, but yeah, I felt I like thinking, I needed to go because he wasn't kicking. Yeah, because you were like, I want to see and I want to know what's going on. So I'm really glad that you listened to yourself and not to me mm-hmm. to have that. Cause if you had skipped that ultrasound, he, he might not have made it. Yeah. Like he was literally like his, he wasn't even, his heart wasn't even beaten, <laughs> you know? And I think, as- I think that, that, that goes to, um, uh, 
it's a good thing that you kind of are in tune with your body mm-hmm. and kind of know when something is wrong, you know, because not everybody is in tune. So right. I think it's a good example of just listening to the mother because actually the mother does know. Much more than anybody much can. Much more than anybody else because you're in that body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So babe, what happened after? So we went to um, straight to the hospital. Pop belly. We went to Pop belly. Because I was yeah, hungry we did. Again. She, she was and hungry again, so we got a we got another sandwich from Potbelly, and then um, that's when we called you and walked to um, GW Hospital and got admitted. And um, what happened after that? It's all a blur now for me. Once we got to the hospital, I don't remember anything. Because that's when they started. They, um, you had they they started the induction. Yeah, they started the induction. They put all the little um monitors and stuff on you. And um, we they sat put there. put a poly bulb in. Yeah. The bulb Can you explain what in? a poly bulb is for our listeners? So, yeah, a poly bulb is like a, it's like a little balloon that they put in and, and they put it into your cervix because before you have the baby, the cervix is closed and the cervix has to open to about 10 centimeters for the baby to come out. So to trigger labor, one of the first things they try sometimes in the hospital is they will put in a poly bulb and then they fill it like with a syringe with... um a liquid and they stretch the cervix open. They're like, they force it open. And for some women, which is in your case, it did work. The body will be like, oh, it's opening. Let's go into labor, mm-hmm. right? Some women that doesn't work. And then they'll have to try something else. They'll have to try medicines. But the good thing I was so happy about GW is they do very gentle inductions where they were like, we're going to give you 12 hours and just see what this bulb is doing. But it was like, they put that bulb in and your body was like, all right. Yeah. And again, no one was listening to me because Nobody I was in was labor. <laughs> you were in labor. So um, Hold up, let's not forget all the, oh, yeah, the in between yeah. parts. Um, every 10 minutes, you would take all the monitors off, go to the restroom, I and then they would have to come back <laughs> and then put the monitors so, right back on. <laughs> Um, yeah, because um, you had asked for the the wireless monitor that you wouldn't be hooked up to the thing, and then they said they didn't have enough, so you had to stay close to the machine. So at the beginning, you were kind of polite, and you call the nurse and be like, uh, "Can you take these off for a minute?" And then she'd take them off, and then a little bit later, you'd be like, "I need these off." Mm-hmm. And then, like towards the end of labor, you were like, "Fuck that shit!" And you yanked it out of the thing, <laughs> and then all of the alarms went off. <laughs> that poor little white lady. <laughs> coming at me. Like, okay, we'll just plug it back in. But I loved it because um normally you're such a compliant person and you don't like confrontation and you'll kind of try and gently, you know, ask for things, but there's you do reach a point where you've had enough. Yes, and in I labor, <laughs> you were just, yeah. In labor, you were just like, I kept thinking, what if she's asking for them? stuff and then they're saying no mm. but I realized that your language shifted so there was a point where the nurse told you to lay down and you were like no <laughs> <laughs> you know what I've also learned something about myself where it's like it scares me because I I can be very civil but if I get to a point where I feel like you know I'm being attacked or compromised or there's something that's not good for my well-being, I will make it known <laughs> that exactly. we're not doing that today. So, so I was um I was thoroughly amused. Um <laughs> I also was I also was concerned because you were in so much pain and they kept offering you 
pain medication. The first time they offered, you didn't hear them and I didn't say anything. Then after that, they were like, you know, you don't, you don't have to do it like this, whatever. And you were just ignoring them, which I thought was fantastic. You know what? Every time somebody that wasn't you or Phil were talking to me, I wanted to punch them. Mm. So I, I tuned them out because even like sometimes people's smells were not smelling good. And then like mm-hmm. people just coming too close to me that I didn't feel protected around. I wanted to fight them. So I was just like, let me just shut them out. <laughs> Unless it was you know, my mom I'm- or Phil. That is, um, that's something instinctively because we're animals, that's something that happens mm-hmm. when you're having a baby is that um, you instinctively try. I mean, if you move an animal usually that's giving birth, it'll stop and it'll die with that baby halfway in, halfway out. Mm-hmm. But the thing is in the hospitals, they have all of this equipment so they can pull the baby out of you. But a lot of times women's labors are stalled because people are not sensitive to the fact that you're kind of in this, you're kind of in the space between life and death. You kind yeah, of like I feel like you're in a trance a little bit. And if you're in that trance, you usually have a better birth than if people keep bringing you out and asking you stupid things. You know what? And- That's why I kind of felt like I was meditating at that point. You know, I didn't know how to explain it, but it's like the way that my body just, I just shut it off. Mm-hmm. And ever, like the only thing, my only mission was to just get this child out as safely and as good as possible. Because I was feeling like I wasn't going to have a baby that was going to be alive. I don't know why I was thinking that, but I was afraid. I was really terrified. And I was just like, if I just listen to myself and zone everybody out, like, you know, I can treat him like crap. I can treat you like crap for the time being. Well, <laughs> But everybody else, like if you're not somebody that I care for or that I know, I wanted to fight you because you're in my way. Mm-hmm. So even though the nurse was so sweet, she was incredible. But I was just like, she was she just was annoying incredible. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So remember when Wami came out, the nurse was trying to get the doctors. Nobody. Well, because yeah, they didn't so- believe that I was in labor. They didn't believe that you were in transition. So you were behaving like you were in transition. Transition is that period right before the baby comes. So right before, you know, you, you, right before you're about to push the baby out. So you started behaving like a woman in transition. That's the point where you're feeling like, I can't do this. The pain is too much. Right. That kind of point. Sometimes you'll cry. So at this point, um, you kind of turn into a football player. Mm. What? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> she was like, like, touch me here, don't touch me. Da, 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 yes, da, da, da. Here, don't, don't, over here. And then we were yeah. doing like the, the rag and so on. There was a point where you were holding on what to rag? the back of the bed, like a, a washcloth. We were wasting a washcloth and then you would tell us where to put it on your back. You know, mm. I don't remember mm. any of that. Yeah. So we were wetting washcloths and so on. And then at some point, um, you were shouting at the contractions. What was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you got ah! <laughs> <It was> great. <laughs> Wait, what was I saying? You were like shouting at the tr- contractions. Like, I was like, you can do it. You were like, yeah, I can do it. Is that all you got? Like, mm. the contractions was fighting you. And then, you know, we used to watch Iyanla Van Zandt. <laughs> and remember, you know how she would wipe away, like, when people are stressed yeah. and they would like, and you'd be yeah. like, mommy, wipe <laughs> the energy. And so it's like wiping the energy. I was like, I'm, I'm moving the energy. <laughs> oh, my God. I do not remember any of that. But um, this was the point where, so the, the doctor had been in. 
said you had about four centimeters more to go. So they would be back in four hours and they left. That's when you started doing all of this extra, you know, like you were in a lot of pain. I kept thinking, why would a woman at four centimeters be Be behaving like like this? (laughs) And, you know, I'm very tolerable. Like I can handle pain. That's why I handle a lot of pain. So at that point, my thought wasn't she's about to have the baby. My thought was this baby's dying inside her and she's feeling a lot of pain. So um, you tell us, do you remember going to the toilet and saying you needed to poop? Yes, I did. The exact same story that you just said. I was hiding in the toilet. Yeah. So that's why I remember like I was I started to close the door because I didn't want to be on the monitors because I felt like I needed to use the bathroom. But the nurse, the nurse. And you didn't you see something? You saw Wami's head. (laughs) Yeah. I I saw something gray and I thought it was your umbilical cord. I thought it was a prolapse cord. That's when the umbilical cord comes out before the baby and and the baby can die. So I saw something gray. I'm not a midwife, so I don't know what I was looking at. So the nurse had told me to go in there with you because she said if she pushes too hard, she can, you know, make things swell and it'll close up. So we started pushing. I was like, that's not a poop kind of push, honey. So I was like, can I look? And first you're like, don't look at my bum. (laughs) So I was like, no, just let me see. That's when I saw the gray thing. You came into the room. That's when the nurse said, you need to lay down. And you said, no. And you got on all fours. You are on all mm-hmm. fours on your back. Phil, I don't even know where you were at this point. Were you behind me? Or next? I was, was behind, behind you. I was behind you. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I saw this gray thing. The nurse came around and she, I don't know, if she, I don't know what she thought, but then she started trying to call the doctor on the monitor. It didn't work. Yeah, it didn't. She said, I'll be right back. No, she tried a little phone thing first. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. No one was coming. She said she'd be right back. And I remember saying this at Hashimba's Wami's naming ceremony, that before this, I had just been praying. I don't pray. I'm not like a praying person. I had just been praying. And I was just like, I don't want any racist doctor touching my baby or my grandbaby. I was like, whatever ancestors are there, Y'all need to come down and cover my child. I was like, if there's a black doctor in the hospital, he needs to be the one to come and receive this baby. I was like, let my child only be handled with love. I don't want anyone touching my my grandbaby. I don't know if, well, I didn't know it was boy. I was like, I don't want anyone touching my grandbaby with negative energy. I was just, you know, that's, that had been my prayer your entire prayer. And you've never, and you've pr- never prayed a day in your life. I don't pray for anything. I depend on my mom. My mom's got like a red phone to speak to Jesus. So she does all of it for me. (laughs) I I don't usually pray. So when I really feel now, and again, I'm normally not this crunchy, but I really feel like whatever ancestral work was happening, they shut down this. Why was the phone not working? Why was the phone wasn't working? working? She couldn't get to anyone. But it took her three minutes to find them because by that time you caught the baby. Mm. Yeah. So then when you were on all fours, the nurse runs out of the room because she's like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm standing behind you and I see this gray thing and I'm thinking it's the umbilical cord. And then it turned and it was a face. Was <laughs> this eyes open? Huh? Those eyes were closed. I just saw like a face. And then... You started laughing 
And he went, ha, 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 it's my baby. And you're looking between like, oh, my baby. <laughs> so he came, he came out and I was thinking, so I caught him and I thought uh, what I wanted to put him towards me. But then I remembered I'd been wearing that scarf. Yeah, you didn't know what to do. You were like this. I remember that. I was like that. this because I thought I'm going to put him on me and all those hospital germs are on him. And then I was like, don't drop the baby. Don't drop the baby. Mm. And he was still attached to you by the cord. Mm. So I didn't know how to give him to you. So I'm standing here holding. And that's when everybody ran in. Mm. So... I don't remember that because I remember almost feeling like I needed to pass out. And then I just, I, I remember being awake, but I kind of like blacked out. I don't know what happened with me because I couldn't hold on me first. What happened? I, I I didn't know what to do, to be honest with you. I, After I'm not an emotional guy, but as soon as I seen them pop out, and, oh, you and mother crying? Part, I just started crying. I couldn't I help remember, <laughs> I couldn't but help. listen, I remember you crying crying Phil because I looked behind me and you were crying and had this flashback because when I had bed now uh honey's dad I'll say he doesn't cry so I remember uh, right after I had bed I heard someone crying because he was sitting behind me and I turned around and he was crying because he was mm. seeing his son and so you were behind me and I turned around and you were crying and I thought ah He's being blessed by his daddy's tears. (laughs) It was great. Maybe it's an instinctive thing for guys where it's like, you know how sometimes you feel like men don't really maybe experience that process until they actually see the thing. So I'm like, I'm wondering if that just is an automatic for men, like when they see their little mini me. (laughs) I don't think it's automatic for all men. I Mm -hmm. I know for me, it was a relief because um, I... I didn't know Phil that well, but I needed uh, I needed confirmation that the baby was going to be loved. Mm. And when I saw Phil crying, I was like, okay, he'll be all right. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily like that for everyone. Somebody might be like, yeah, all right, the baby's here. I'm going to go down to Starbucks. I don't know what people do, but, you know, I, I felt like you were... Um, immediately emotionally invested mm. yeah i think That's some important. people take for granted that that happens for moms but that because you know you know all the fuss i was making i was like put them on your skin put them on your skin because you know mm. yeah because phil, um, phil from my recollection held him first he was yeah i think so i, I, I would think i was bleeding or something like i, I don't know you what know, was going were, on with you me. Were, oh no this is going to be a long conversation mm-hmm. part so, two yeah. So what happened was uh, Phil was kind of worried about you and I could see he was kind of like, baby, honey, baby. So I had said to Phil, you go take care of your baby and I will take care of mine. Really? So that's he, yeah. So he went over because I needed somebody over by the baby and somebody needed to be by you, which makes sense, right? Of course, because he was such a tiny thing. He was such a tiny thing. And um, I also needed for Iwami to know that someone was there with him. Because I, I kind of feel like baby sense those things. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I needed, uh, uh, he needed and you needed. I mean, 
I also feel like the people who are handling your child, if you're standing right there looking at them, are going to be, they're going to, you know, be gentle. take a little bit more care. <laughs> I don't know, you know. But anyway, <clears throat> so we, the women in our family hemorrhage uh, after they have babies. Now, most people tell you that scientifically there's no connection between people in the family. It's not something that's- And what is hemorrhaging? Can you explain? When you bleed more than you should after you have a baby and there's difficulty stopping the bleeding. Okay. All of my mom's sisters have had this issue. Your auntie Ella almost died after having Gabrielle because she lost so much blood. Um, I lose a little bit, maybe like twice as much blood than you're supposed to. So not enough to put me in danger, but enough that it's a concern. Every prenatal appointment that I came to, I kept trying to say to the doctors. You tell them all the time, every time, and they were so tired of it. Yeah, I was like, you know, we hemorrhage. So <clears throat> one of the things that I wanted to be sure that happened was that you were given um, this hormone that they give you after you have the baby to make sure that your uterus contracts hard because that contracting is what stops the bleeding. So I don't know if that our, our uteri get lazy after we have a baby or what it is, but generally that has been an issue in my family where we don't contract right away. And it's very easily fixed. You just give the person that drug right away, massage the belly, <clears throat> and it stops the bleeding. You just, you know, you have to be active. So even though I have my babies at home, my midwife knows this about me. So she'll actually bring the syringe with it in it. And then she'll just give me a shot in my thigh right after the baby's born to make sure that that, that clamps down and, and stops the bleeding. So right after all of that drama of them not being in the room, um, I think they were feeling guilty. I remember somebody was like asking the nurse, well, what happened and why didn't you call yeah, us? Yeah, they were being so rude to her. I remember that. They, yeah, they were not being nice to her. Um, I think at this point, yeah. So I had said to them, they had like cleaned you up and put a pad on. And I had said to them, can someone check her bleeding? Now I know their standard is maybe 10 or 15 minutes after they clean you up, they'll look again. They were kind of preoccupied with the baby. So I, I, kept, I was like, can you check her bleeding? They were like, no, we just look, she's fine. I was like, yeah, you know, but we bleed a lot. Can someone just look at her bleeding? And then I was also saying, has someone started the pethidine in her drip? They were like, yeah, no, we, we started it, whatever. So then I was, I was insisting. So the doctor opened your pad, like they put like a pad on you, took it open and you were just gushing blood. It was just everywhere. So she was like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And then she starts like massaging your uterus, which was really painful. And then I was, and then now I'm worried that you're going to have PTSD from this birth. So um, I was saying to her, she hasn't, she didn't have any pain medication. So she was like, oh, what? She didn't have an epidural? Now, why the doctor wouldn't know that you hadn't had any pain? Because a lot of women have epidurals, a lot of women have epidurals. So you can massage as hard as you want to as a doctor. They're not going to feel it. But you can't do that same treatment to someone who hasn't. That's why it was so painful for me. That, that to me looked more painful than the labor had been. It was. I'm like, give her, give her some pain medication. Give her some pain medication. They were like, okay, but we've got to stop this bleeding. Um, at this point, <clears throat> there was some blood clots. There, were, there was a really big blood clot. That she had to actually reach in and pull oh, out. Okay, okay, okay. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she was just like um, trying to stop the bleeding. The bleeding wouldn't stop. 
Then they were like, maybe your bladder is too full. Try and empty your bladder and then we'll see. That's when you sat on the loo and we thought you were peeing and then you stood up and it was all blood. I didn't see that and I didn't know. So anyway, you started pulling on my arm and you said, mom, my arm hurts. But you were kind of getting quiet. You didn't look okay. So then I looked at your arm and the place where they had put the drip in, there was a huge bubble. So none of the medication, the the needle must have slipped or something or the vein had blown. None of the medication had actually gone into your body. That's why- This is why women are not- surviving these situations they're not paying attention they're not paying attention so the um there was this big bubble so they realized that you over this whole 20 30 minute period now you'd had no medication so my whole entire pregnancy um birth experience no medication from from giving birth until that point until so nothing nothing unmedicated yeah so um the uh uh they then I think they called like the head nurse or something because they were having difficulty finding the vein. Finally, they got it in. Then they had to give you a different kind of medicine to try and stop the bleeding. But at this point, I had just been saying, you need to give her more pain medication. So they had really heavily medicated you by now. So you were kind of loopy mm-hmm. at this point, but the pain had stopped. Um, I remember because I couldn't hold while me by myself. No, yeah, because they had given you so much some medication that started with a D. But anyway, um, I remember stepping back from the bed and there was blood on the floor. Oh my God. And I was just thinking they were, they were going to kill my baby. Wow. I didn't know it was that bad. It was, yeah. So, hmm. and you know, the thoughts that go through your head, I'm like, what if Phil and I were not standing behind the bed and the baby had fallen on the ground? Mm. And nobody what was if, there. And nobody was there. No what medical was, professional. What if I was, um, par- what if I hadn't been paranoid about the postpartum bleeding and then you had just bled to and death. bled in your underwear that no one was checking and they Jesus hadn't Christ. been able to fix it? So, whew. I mean, even after that, like, didn't I have to stay in the hospital for a week? Yeah. It was a week or something. About four, four or five days. But that was also because of his weight issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what a wild story. Yes. Any but, more um, questions? Um, yeah, like when, when you hear statistics in that about for your age group, before you had this baby, was this something that you even heard about or thought about? Like how, how women are dying and so on? Is it, is it something that was on your radar at all? Not until I got pregnant, because that's when the story start, started to come out, mm-hmm. especially for Washington, D.C., the fact that it was a desert. Um, there wasn't a lot of hospitals where women could access very easily. Um, you know, there was GW, but a lot of women can't access GW. So what is the other one? Uh, yeah. Or even so before we went to GW, just for the regular checkups, before we had the midwife, um, we went to another hospital that wasn't exactly clean or even paid attention to little small details you know what I mean or even communicating because they would like often lose um was it like paperwork they lost my paperwork so many times so Kaiser it was like you have to start over every time 
Mm-hmm. You go there. And then them not knowing your name or knowing mm-hmm. who you are, that like that's mm-hmm. also kind of overwhelming for someone who's expecting because it's like you you do want to know that you can trust someone mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with yourself and your your you know, but your it future just seems child. like you're just another number. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you don't feel you don't feel seen or cared for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I felt the most care for at birth care. And I'm so sad I didn't have my ba- my baby that way. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like it would have been a beautiful experience, but given my, you know, condition and just having to be hospitalized prior to giving birth, that was impossible for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, <clears throat> I kind of feel like somewhere the ball is being dropped where people of childbearing age don't actually know or have the equipment to uh, be able to advocate for themselves. You know, I mean, I'm still, I'm still learning. Um, Kanika, who is a friend of mine, um, Dr. Kanika um, Harris, she was saying to me, I was listening to something she was saying, and she was saying how when you don't have enough pain medication in the hospital after you have a baby, you can't say, oh, I'm still in pain or I'm feeling a 10 or whatever. They don't really listen. You have to say the words. I don't feel like my pain is being managed well. And that's like a flag for them. Um, and also, if you're saying that, it's also insurance will cover it because it's in pain management. So there's all of these little things where, and this is part of what I try and do as Chimonera Chedu, is making that information available to young families, that this is the kind of language that you need to use. Another thing that I learned was... <clears throat> when you have a concern and the doctor kind of brushes it off or doesn't do anything about it, you can say, um, right now I have a headache and I want it noted in my chart that I told you you had a headache and you told me not to worry about it. Because them having to write it down means they're now accountable for it. Or if they, they refuse to give you a certain medication, you can say, I would like it noted in my chart that you said, I don't need such and such and such and such, whatever it is. Right. So um, we shouldn't have to do that. Medical professionals should be taking care of us because that's what they're paid to do. That's what they you know, have pledged they're going to do. Mm. But in the situation that we are right now, <clears throat> as um, Black South Africans and American in America, these are the, the kind, this kind of advocating we now have to do for our own um, families. I think that's important or even having like representation, maybe like uh, a mediator or someone like you in a sense who knew which questions to ask or just be vocal. Like um, I know it's hard for certain women, especially going through birth to like formulate those things or even think about those things where you're so focused on having a baby. So maybe just having like a mediator or outside source that can communicate with doctors, you know, so those certain needs are met. Most definitely. And I'm actually really proud of the women in my age group currently who are noticing these stories or noticing that a lot of doctors aren't listening to them. So they are looking for people who do exactly what you do um, mm-hmm. in their state. Unfortunately, some of them don't, you know, have the privilege of, you know, <laughs> having your services because they're in a different space or a different country. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed a lot of them refusing to go to the hospital because they're not yeah, in a, a space where they're comfortable, but also they're not in a space where they feel cared for. So mm-hmm. 
just having it at home has been most a, a very popular option for for women my age. Yeah, but I think um, you know, educating women about what should be happening with your body, trusting your own body, and you know, kind of having an advocate is um, is really important. And you know, it, it goes. It's not just for when you have baby. You know, uh, we're at a stage where, at least for me, my parents are getting older. You know, my mother-in-law is getting older. We have to be able to, you know, advocate for our parents in the same way. Mm -hmm. Right. In the, in the medical system, you know, we got to know what questions to ask, how to ask it, to be able to track their care. It's a big job. Um, I want to move the conversation. Okay. Because I have a, I have a question. So, Phil, you're an artist. Mm -hmm. And Hamdi, you're an artist. And I've been watching you guys and I've been really curious. How did becoming parents affect your ability to make and, uh, you know, still be an active, creative person? How has it affected it? You go first. Um, for me personally, um, I feel that the creativity is still there. And there's still a lot of like random things or different outlets I use to channel that creativity if it's not just specifically photography. Like the podcast. Right. But it's mm -hmm. now it's extremely hard trying to balance um, going to work um, or waking up in the morning, making everyone lunch, going to work, dropping off junior before I go to work and coming back and just not having enough gas in the tank to think about creating, you know, is, is troubling, but I feel that we still need to make some time, whether it's like a day out of the month or, you know, just, just a little bit of time to create. So um, what they say, if you don't use it, you lose it just so that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. For myself, yeah. Yeah, for myself, I've just um, been really thinking about how time never waits for anyone mm. and that we've now had our chance to, you know, kind of establish ourselves as far as having opportunities to be able to take care of our son. But I often think about like, I don't want us to be the parents that were like, oh, we used to be artists, mm. you know, that's mm -hmm. one of my fears mm -hmm. because I also don't want to encourage him to go for his dreams if we're not living ours. And mm -hmm. so um just hopefully like this year, I really want us to take, take some time to continue our creativity because mm -hmm. that's who we are as individuals. So in a sense, like I don't want to be lying to our son about who we are or who we used to be and living, you know, a different life because it's like, well, mom, you didn't do it. So why do I have to, or can, mm -hmm. am, am I able to do it? Because I didn't see you in this example, right. accomplish your goals. That's what I was just about to say, being an example, because right. naturally we're two artists. So he's like naturally a gifted artist, whether it be music. <laughs> he might know, be a mathematician. A mathematician, like, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, just... He has natural gifts that a two-year-old should not have at this age. At his age, you know what I mean? Being able to recite his alphabets front and back or counting up to 50 or, or reading. picking up reading. No, it's 100 now. Right, 100. Yeah. Or even picking up random sticks and just drum, you know, just having that ability that 
no one has taught him. He just picks it up. He'll watch something for like two or three seconds and pick it up just like that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he was singing. It's a small world. He was humming. It's a small world after all today. Right. The whole thing. So just <laughs> us being that example um, or just guiding him, you know, guiding a child in itself is an art form, too. Mm-hmm. You know That's what true. I mean? It's 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 a balance. It's an art form, and just helping him focus on whatever he wants to do is an art form. So mm-hmm. we have to funnel our creativity and 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 pr- pursue our 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 ideals in order for him to do it as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So one, I, one of the yeah. mm-hmm. oh my god. One of the major drawbacks that you've both experienced um, here in America is child care mm-hmm. is impossible. Mm-hmm. So there was a point at which I remember you were spending, what, five, six hundred dollars a week? Yeah. Six to eight hundred dollars a week for child care. On child care. Six to eight hundred dollars. That is not sustainable for anybody, never mind somebody who wants to be an artist, right? Mm. <laughs> those were so my canvases a studio space you know like had it not been for our our obligations like that's a lot of money already for childcare. so talk to me about that guys when you realized what child care was gonna cost what what did you think was it like mind-blowing had you thought about it before like how what happened like what was your thought process and Everything, having your first child, every different experience is a a new learning experience. So basically figuring out the price of childcare was like a smack in the face, like a wake up call. Like you're here now, you're an adult. So you have to figure out and manage your situation on how you can, you know, do this. You know what I mean? Yeah, for me, I was just like, it is what it is. You say 600, we're going to find it. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, there was no option for me. If my child needs, it, whether it's 800, 8,000, I will find a way. Mm-hmm. We were not going yeah. to go to sleep until we figure it out. So if that, that meant that's us not mean, eating, <laughs> and we you know, that, yeah. we're not eating. But that same, that same drive that has you focused as in it doesn't matter what it takes, my child's life comes first unfortunately is the same thing that throws water on the fire of your art, right? Mm. Because you're like, we have to get a nine to five because he needs this, he needs shoes, he needs healthcare, whatever. And so you have to put that first. Whereas really and truly the best way to be the artist is just to be given a space to just be, and Mm. then you create, right? And that's the opposite of what you have when you're a parent. Yeah. So it's like, how do you navigate both? Like how? Yeah, so this is, you know, every conversation we have must be something that we're building for the future. If we could ideally, if we could create an ideal. So like, if I were to give you and Phil a million dollars and say, what are you going to do for young parents who are artists? What would you build? We already talked about that, a big space where Mm -hmm. parents and their children, artists in general, can just have a space to create, studio Mm -hmm. space, affordable studio space. So affordable studio space. What else would you have in there? Um, podcast studio, art for studio for rent. I, I think an art th- store and a bookstore with art stuff in it. When I had, when we had the idea about it, my initial idea is um, 
remember back in the day when all the great philosophers would come to one space and have conversations and to innovate and think of different ways to improve society. You know, mm-hmm. just those space, those type of spaces for artists so we can come together and improve each other for mm-hmm. the better, you know, and just formulate those type of communities, you know, like a Black Renaissance, you know what I mean? Like those type of communities where we can create and, you know, um, build a, a better world for our children and, and their children's children. Me, not so crunchy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but more for profit. But um, no, like, I really love that idea of having like a communal space for artists, like Phil said, and to even have a space where it's not even us having to ask for permission to be recognized in the art world that's predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Like, let's create our own space so we can have our own Black art base or our own narratives and things that we can celebrate ourselves instead of waiting to be accepted in a society that never really sees us unless it's a trend Mm -hmm. so that there's always a space. Um, I guess like Martha's Vineyard, you know, where it's like a space where, you know, very Black and affluent people have their arts, their music, but just a space where you can genuinely be a Black person and not have to wait for someone to recognize you as an artist. Mm -hmm. As a summary. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so now, taking away that million dollars and having you where you are now, what can you build now for artists like you because you know, sometimes <laughs> you know you do have this podcast and I think this is amazing and I've, I've been amazed like every time I'm looking at your Instagram it's like wait they had time to do another one mm. you know and I'm like and the kid is clean and fed wow it's pretty impressive <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah I mean one of the um things you might consider is a a co-op where you share, mm. give each other childcare so that you can each have time to work. And obviously it's not that easy now with the pandemic, but if you find parents within a pod, maybe if it's even three artist couples mm-hmm. where you would give each other time and you take each other's children, mm. um, like some kind of community so you can help each other that way, that's something else too. It's not um, a bad idea. Yeah, like if you can find two, three other couples, children who are about the same age, and then you kind of come together and, you know, this this weekend, this person is going to have a kid. Or even if it's renting an Airbnb and you all go and make studio space. An art retreat. An art retreat with your kids so you can stay Phil and Hundy from 10 o'clock to 12 to, you know, 10 o'clock to four o'clock on the Saturday, are going to have all the kids. And then the next day you guys can just create and somebody else has all the kids. So do it guys. Yeah. yeah. I love that. You know, because if you all, if you all put in money for the rental of the space and go somewhere and do an artist retreat, these are things that I'm saying to you because I'm looking back at my own life and thinking, why didn't I do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had enough writer friends where I could be like, hey, I, we even had started a group years ago. A book club. It, was called, um, it was like a book club. Uh, it was, I don't know, Mothers Against, I don't know, Not Writing or something like that. And we would all kind of come together, but it stopped because we um, had a hard time finding childcare. Mm-hmm. But at no point did we think about maybe five of us should meet and five of us should what the kids and then we switch over the next time 
That's a you know? that's that's a great idea. Yeah. You know, it all it all starts with conversations first. You know, that was the whole point of this podcast of us starting this mm-hmm. podcast is having these type of conversations to and encourage each other right to keep forth right to right exactly yeah <laughs> um i have one this is this is actually going to be my last question because mm. this is something that i teach in my postpartum classes and when i'm helping you brides and so on is the importance of ritual mm. um so we kind of forced rituals on you guys after the baby was born we had the seven day naming ceremony when we came to the house and then he had his um was more than three months, but it was his after three months naming ceremony for the community. Um, do you guys think that there is a need for spiritual rituals and so on? And did it make a difference for you that you had those rituals? Or do you think you would have been fine if you had done it or not? That's a great question. Um, initially, I didn't think that it was necessary at all. But I noticed how when you have rituals, that's when people come together, right? So um, I love the idea of having you, you and Phil's mom in the same space, you know, all celebrating WAMI. Those, those are some things that I like, the family quality or the family aspect of it. Um, just in terms of my ambiguity, as far as like religion and spirituality at the time being, or at the moment, um, there are certain things where I, I feel like it would have been the same without the ritual or that experience um, because still I'm still questioning you know what what it is that I want <laughs> for my family and for myself mm-hmm. so um, I think for me it was mostly the the importance of family being able Coming to experience together. it together what about um, you Phil you are kind of thrown in the deep end with a lot of this um naturally I'm not a very spiritual person but the way I live my lifestyle is kind of through like daily ritual, mm-hmm. you know, routine. daily routine. I wake up at a certain time every day. I make everyone's lunch at a certain time every day. Um, like mm-hmm. I have to go through certain bullet points in order for me to feel like my day has been successful in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that can be spiritual in a sense, but not to um, a perspective of, you know, um, going through um, a certain type of religion or anything kind of like that. But I think mm-hmm. it's important just to have some type of routine to create, mm-hmm. whether it's for a child to, especially for children, when you're like for structure and training them to mm-hmm. grow into themselves. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. really important. Mm-hmm. Did we answer your question? You, you did answer my question. Yeah, I mean... You know, honey, you know your brothers and sisters, they say that you and Phil are, what do they call you, hippy-dippy and a little bit trippy? Because I think you're really spiritual. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, they think that you guys are like really, do you, you know what, you know that song? It's from Happily Happily Ever After, those, those HBO things. Mm. And there's some girl on it and she's like hippy-dippy and a little bit trippy. And they're just like, yeah, because I get, I don't know. What they think they we're hipsters you. or what? <laughs> yes, they yes they do. They think that you are crunchy artists. <laughs> <laughs> that is too. I mean, Phil kind of fits the bill with the with the beard and the hat and, and the, the beanie, yeah, you know, and the beanie, and then yeah. So kind of, <laughs> I never, so I, I never I mean, thought that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So they uh they see you. 
as very kind of deep and spiritual people. So it's interesting to see that you don't necessarily um, see yourselves that way. I, I do believe um, that ritual is very important, not necessarily for the parents themselves. I think it's important for the children looking back. Like I think it's important for Wami looking back for people to say, this was your naming ceremony. Because I think people want to feel like they were important enough that you did something for them. Right. You know. Exactly. Um, so to be able to say this is this was your naming ceremony. I also feel like having some kind of ritual, especially surrounding birth, um, I think it helps us acknowledge that we are spirits in a body. Because if we just keep thinking of ourselves as not spiritual beings, then that kind of, we feel like we're here forever. Mm. But if you kind of, if we, like for, for me, uh, the naming ceremony where we had the whole community and Hundi had the white circles on, you know, painted on her and the white and everything. When it was done for me, I was like, this is just team too much. And I have a headache and I'd rather be watching TV. But it, it I guess maybe now I'm a grandmother I suddenly understood because I had been told before that the circles means that the mother has come full circle from a point where she and the baby could have died, but she's made it to be able to close that circle. That's why they put circles all over you. Um, the white is because you're being <clears throat> reborn into the community. You're now a mother. So that, that whole symbolism for me, that, that acknowledging of spirit is important for us uh, because... I feel like there's so much done to dehumanize us. Mm. So we have to be, you know, we've got to kind of push those things more for ourselves so that we can remind ourselves how important we are. Definitely. Um, so that when we go back into these spaces, we kind of feel like we have some sort of covering, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I also did not do it for me because I could care less, but I did it for my child. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like I, I, th I did, I did understand that quality of having something where he's like, well, what did you guys do for me when I was born? Like, you know, sometimes it's nice to be like, yeah, I was treated like royalty. <laughs> I think at the end yeah. of the day, it's the intention behind it too, mm -hmm. you know, collectively, I mean, individually, yes, you can have that drive, but collectively all of us are focusing and honing in that intention behind that which creates the circumstance which creates the spirituality you know what I mean if it's just one person individually it doesn't have the same uh powerful effect so mm -hmm. it's like a hundred people praying at the same time mm -hmm. and that actually right. creates or a hundred people doing a rain dance and that creates the rain you know to come down yeah. it's it's, it's the intention behind it. Yeah, but I really thought what I thought, and I always think this is beautiful during marriages, like the Akan ceremony or um, the naming ceremony where you have the tastings and mm -hmm. everything that was in the tasting, like his personality was definitely that, you know, mm -hmm. how he took every diff different, you know, taste of whatever it was is the same energy we get right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's like, it's, he, you yeah, know. it's like, it, it's forcing you to look at, at your, your, baby as a person right. who's going to be a whole a whole person for me it's it's also when there's a baby there's the the coming together of um two very separate lines right mm -hmm. so say wami's children and children's children do end up still being very spiritual and 
calling to their ancestors. There's going to be some point where someone's pouring libation and they're going to say to my great-great-grandparents, Phil and Hundy. Mm -hmm. So like you are tomorrow's ancestors. So we can't not mark that right. with ritual because if we don't mark it, then nobody's going to call your name and you're going to be like that boy in that Hispanic movie with if they forget the grandparents and they disappear, <laughs> you yeah. know, so that... Um, so that, that, you know, there's the importance behind um, ritual. I think that's all of my questions. That's lovely. Do you, Do you have, have any, any more questions, questions for mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've covered everything. And I'm so happy that she came on the show, the podcast today. Hopefully it won't be the last time. But I, mm-hmm. I think that it's important for everyone um, who's listening to know who my mom is. <laughs> She's a very yeah. incredible woman, and a very intelligent yeah. woman Thank you. with um, everybody a needs lot to, of wa- a wealth of knowledge. Everybody needs to come to my website. I okay. teach classes. What kind so of classes I have, um, <clears throat> Just name the them. Classes, yeah, the first class I have is Bubble Baby, where I teach people the traditional African way of carrying a baby on your back. Um, the next class is called Masungiro, which is about traditional postpartum care um, in Zimbabwe, specifically in my tribe, which is the Zezuro. And so we talk about the rituals that we do, well, used to be done in Zimbabwe. And then from there, we have like a kind of group discussion about what we can take from the traditional Zimbabwean um, model and bring to the lives that we're living now and work out what we can, you know, how we can have a more comprehensive postpartum care from that. The new class that I have is called Mujrere. Mujrere is what we call a woman who's just had a baby. Mm-hmm. And um, that is actually a post postpartum planning class for new moms. So if you're pregnant, thinking about being pregnant, you know, the amount of time that you spend planning your baby shower, you need to spend twice as much time planning for that three three months to one year after you have a baby. So it's kind of talking people through what's going to be happening to your body and how to heal and plan from having a baby. Thank you. So how can people get in contact with you or the classes? You have a website, Instagram, or anything like that? My website is chimoneramother.com. And um, I have an Instagram. I think it's called Chimonera. It's Chimonera Life is my Instagram. And I'm on Facebook as well. <clears throat> I also have a Facebook page called An African Mother's Corner. Most of the mothers on that are from different places in Africa, but anyone who identifies as an African mother is welcome to join. And on that, I really just post articles and information and new stuff about baby care and childcare and women and so on. So I do have one question for you since you had a question for us as artists. Um, given that you had asked a beautiful question for Phil about how his postpartum experience was, in the future, will you have anything for a postpartum uh, support for men? Or... Oh, yes, please. <laughs> we need help, too. Any, <laughs> any courses for men in the future? Because I know you're heavily well, focused on women, but, you know. I am very heavily focused on women. Um, I have thought about um, doing a joint class with, um, with Dad um, because he's really good with postpartum and with the whole birth thing. Problem is he doesn't really like talking. <laughs> so, you know, um, so I have thought about it. I am thinking about it. I'm thinking maybe in, in the class, Mujeda having that, it might be something, Phil, that, you know, I might be asking you to do a podcast with a group of dads. 
That would be beautiful. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. So, because we we know quite a few, quite a few people who've had kids within the last four or five years. So, um, listen, if you do that podcast, then I can listen to it and then I'll know what they need in the class and I'll do a class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mommy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for um, having me. I know I'm pretty pre- uh, reserved and, and don't speak a lot, but hopefully this gave you an insight on who I am, too. <laughs> it did. It's been it's been really beautiful. It, it's been um, really good. It's really interesting, Phil, that. Uh, sometimes I think I don't know you well and then your son does something and you're like, that's just like Phil. (laughs) (laughs) So he's kind of, what you're not saying, he's He's doing a whole lot. He's doing a whole lot, yeah. Well, thank you, Mommy. All right. appreciate it. Have a nice night. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.